Veda Yoga. This is our first. Uh, this is our first class with Acharya Dave with um, yeah. the Bhagavad Gita. Let's give him a warm welcome. very grateful and honored that you're here to share your not only your time but your extensive wisdom in the bhakti tradition and we're just so incredibly grateful no pressure <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being here oh thank you kumi jai sita yeah, finally made it to video finally made it <laughs> so jai we're live now yes okay right. so we'll start with kirtan Thank you. 
speaker. H.D. Uh, Goswami has been steeped in the bhakti tradition since uh, the age of 21. Just a few years Just ago. Few. <laughs> Actually, 20. 20. Precocious. And took sannyasi at the age of 23. He's uh, went to Harvard, studied Sanskrit and Indian philosophy, and has been traveling all over the world just sharing this profound wisdom, and we're so fortunate to be here with him this morning. Let's put our hands together for H.T. Goswami. Thank you, Kumi. Is there a Bhagavad Gita in the house? Yes. Oh. Oh, my God. You have a We'll see what Kumi's going to bring back. I generally do comparison shopping. <laughs> this one's pretty uh, authorized. 
Thank you. So uh, we'll start at the beginning. Um, I'm going to read the Sanskrit for the first verse of Bhagavad Gita, chapter one, text one, which of course many of you know. It begins, Drita Rastra Uvacha, Dharma Kshetre, Kuru Kshetre, Samaveta Yuyutsava, Mamaka Pandavas Shaiva Kimakurvata Sanjaya. So I'm going to translate the Sanskrit very closely, give you a very literal translation because, um, because it says a lot. So actually, so it begins, um, Drita Rastra Uvacha. Oh. Oh, actually, this is fine. Yeah, I'm just going to both put that here. Thank you. Um, Dhritarashtra is a historical figure. We're talking about an age. Uh, these events took place, according to the tradition, roughly 5,120 years ago or something like that, roughly. And uh, so you may ask, well, how do we know this actually took place that long ago? Well. We have two sources. One is an uh, astroarchaeological source, and the other one is uh, an epigraphic source. Okay, now English. The um, nice to see you again. Um, there was a great mathematician and astronomer in India, roughly, I think he was around 600s or 500, 600s around there, named Aryabhata. Just to give you some of his credentials, he's one of the founders of trigonometry. So, smart guy. And uh, he was a great mathematician, great astronomer, and there are actually celestial bodies named after him, you know, different points on the moon, and there are universities named after him. And rockets actually named after him. So he's a he's he's one of the great astronomer mathematicians of that period. And he was also uh, Krishna conscious, actually. He was, of course, in India, Aryabhata, and uh, he did an archaeo astronomical calculation. With that, archaeo just means very old. What he because in this ancient culture people were very much attuned to the zodiac star <clears throat> positions. Uh, you may wonder why so many ancient civilizations uh, went by a lunar calendar, such as India or the ancient Hebrew calendar and so on. It's because they did important calculations by looking at the night sky, often much easier to see the moon during the night and the nakshatras, the uh, lunar mansions and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so therefore, in the ancient Sanskrit texts, like the Bhagavatam, and even actually even in the Bhagavad Gita, where in chapter 8, Krishna talks about yogis who, when they leave this world, transcend the material world altogether and go to the spiritual world, or yogis who have to come back and you know, try again. And it's based on also an astronomical calculation. So this ancient civilization was extremely attuned to celestial bodies. For example, when someone was born, they had experts called Jatakovidas, which means birth experts, who when important people were born, they would do all the calculations, get a very precise reading on, you know, is it a hit or a miss? 
Sometimes the calculation would reveal if the person that was just born is just awful. It's going to cause, you know, this person would cause all kinds of trouble in the world. And sometimes it was better. So, but because of this importance given, well, in, in general, this ancient civilization was very much in tune with nature. For example, there's innumerable analogies and metaphors to natural things, to trees, different kinds of animals, birds. And so if, uh, I mean, we in our capitalist society, we have capitalism analogies like, well, what's the bottom line? Or I don't know if I can buy into that. It, it's kind of unfortunate, right? That all of our, we have so many analogies which are based on capitalism. But actually in this ancient civilization, it's, if, if you read the literature, they're just innumerable metaphors and analogies and illustrations coming from the natural world. Whether it's certain kinds of animals or birds, as I said, or the process of, for example, one very sophisticated philosophical point is made by talking about a clay pot. Or for example, like the clay pot is clay, but it's not just clay, it's also a pot or you know, the air which is inside the pot and outside the pot. So even they do very sophisticated philosophy by talking about things like clay pots. And so it's, uh, it's a very interesting civilization, very natural, totally in tune with nature and uh, very much in tune with celestial bodies. So um, therefore in the Bhagavatam, for example, you find many, many references to uh, star positions and, and, and planetary positions for important events. This is how they date things because they didn't have BC, BC and AD, they didn't have uh, before Christ because that was way before Jesus and it wasn't a Christian civilization. So they didn't, they didn't have like BC or now in order to, uh, what's the word, uh, secularize dates, they now say BCE before the common era because none of the agnostic scholars want to date things by using a religious reference. So they changed it to BCE. And then AD is of course the uh, Anno Domine, the year of our Lord, because after the Lord came, anyway. So they didn't have that. They didn't date things like that. And so therefore they simply put in, uh, as they did have the ways they would date it, there, there are four great yugas, which can last up to over a million years or hundreds of thousands of years, sort of these great celestial ages were in the Kali Yuga. So they would sometimes mention which Yuga it was or who was the Manu, like in the rain, like we might say like, uh, you know, during the reign of, I don't know, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar during, you know, when Eisenhower was the president. So they will mention who was the Manu, who was a great leader of humanity during a particular time, but also, to get to, to, to zero in even more precisely on when things happen, they would um, give star positions and then when a particular star was prominent or in that house or, you know, all that lingo. So, so therefore we have lots of astronomical information around the time that Krishna, not around the time, when Krishna appeared in this world, there are very precise astronomical descriptions and when the battle of Kurukshetra took place. And of course the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavad Gita is taking, taking place on a battlefield of Kurukshetra. I mean, the place still exists, Kurukshetra. It's a flat plain. So why did they pick Kurukshetra? One thing, it's very flat. 
and suitable for battlefield. Number two, it was far enough away from centers of population because they were very concerned that innocent people not be injured, especially because, uh, especially because um, they had these super high-tech weapons that now appear to us to be, or not to us, but appear to some people to be mythology. I give this example actually in the uh, preface to my, the first volume of the work I'm doing on all these historical events, reconstructing the history. And uh, I mean, imagine, here's an example I give. Imagine there's some apocalyptic event, you know, maybe another meteor hits the earth, like the one that wiped out the dinosaurs and basically just totally reconfigured the weather and of the earth, or for example, a nuclear holocaust or this or that. Uh, so and let's say civilization as we know it uh, is, is lost and we enter into this dystopian phase where people return to a very, well, in some ways it's good, a very simple civilization, sort of pre-industrial civilization. And it's important also to understand that um, for, you know, for, for almost all of the time that human beings have existed on earth, uh, it was pre-industrial. So the world as we now know it with all kinds of machines and, and digital technology, that's just a little tiny, tiny slice of human history. And so before the industrial revolution, uh, uh, people had a much simpler life, a natural life, which is why I say environmentalism is necessary, but not sufficient. Because before the Industrial Revolution, basically, this was an organic planet. And, and there were all kinds of atrocities and horrible things going on. If you read ancient history, pre-industrial history, it's, it's awful. The cruelty, the torture, the murder, the genocide sometimes. So therefore, just making the world organic, necessary, but not sufficient. You should keep that in mind. So, um, so what if, what if the Earth returns to a sort of natural state because of some disaster? What if our technology doesn't survive? But inevitably, let's say some books survive. Is that music coming from you? No, somewhere else. It might be, um, it might be the Hero Oh, okay. I can close this. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, that's nice. Don't want to disturb the <laughs> So imagine, let, let's say, let's say, let's say 5,000 years into the future, not 5,000 years ago, but 5,000 years into the future. And uh, all that's left of our civilization is some books that somehow survive. This is analogous because 5,000 years ago, there was a civilization and all that survived is some books. So let's do sort of a parallel historical scenario where it's 5,000 years in the future. And let's say some books to survive talking about our technology. Like you just point and click here and maybe, you know, a, a hill blows up. Or you point and click there and, the, you know, the blind can see. You do like a digital surgery. All kinds of amazing things happen just by pointing and clicking. And uh, obviously people 5,000 years from now will have absolutely no doubt that that is simply primitive mythology. For them, that will be primitive mythology because it doesn't exist. There's nothing like it, no analogs. 
And so therefore people back then just had vivid imaginations. The point here is from, from, from this Krishna conscious point of view, that's exactly what happened. There was an advanced civilization. It had technology, which is far beyond what we have today, far, far beyond. And um, now that civilization is lost, we just have some books remaining, which uh, sort of smart Alex scholars assume is just mythology. So what we do have, getting back to dating these events, the Bhagavad Gita, we have uh, all these astronomical descriptions. So Aryabhata, one of the great scientists of history and mathematicians, he calculated when would that have been? When would the night sky have shown those particular conf astronomical configurations? And of course, the time is about over 5,100 years ago. Interestingly, it's confirmed elsewhere because there's something called the Iole inscription. There was a king about 600 AD. So that would be about uh, 1400, approximately 1400 years ago in what is today, I guess, Madhya Pradesh in India, sort of the central part of India uh, from north-south perspective, central part of India. And uh, he had one of the court poets inscribe in stone his glories. You know, that's what kings did. They're, they're not the most self-effacing group of people. So he had this, but he wanted to date it. He wanted to date it, like so people would know when his reign was, when he ruled. And so the, he, the poet engraved in stone that this took place, uh, you know, so many years, 3,000, so many hundred, hundreds of years after the Battle of Kurukshetra. So that particular engraving is dated. And so if you say how many years from that came to us today, and then add on the years, it comes out almost exactly the same as Aryabhata. So anyway, that's the source of that uh, understanding of when these events actually took place. Also, just one thing I'll throw in here is that if you actually did a scholarly study of everything that was going on on the earth 5,000 years ago, because 5,000 years ago, the, the Bhagavatam and many scriptures say that the very moment that Krishna left this world and went back to his abode, the Dwapara Yuga, that great planetary age ended and the new age began, Kali Yuga. And so that took place the very the moment that Krishna left this world. So if you study Earth 5,000 years ago, all kinds of things were happening, which indicate a major planetary shift. For example, the El Nino weather effect began 5,000 years ago. So Earth's weather changed. Another thing was, in one of the great civilizations of that time, outside of India, Mesopotamia, the Akkadian and you know all those people in in in, in, uh, in what is now Iraq, uh, there were major political upheavals about five thousand years ago. Because if you consider that all these kings and warriors were killed in the Battle of Kurukshetra, then that means that in the aftermath of that battle, 
there would be major realignments, major political and military shifts on Earth. That was absolutely inevitable. And history shows that's what happened. Anyway, so we're just going to go with roughly 5,000 years ago. <laughs> so now, getting back to the first verse of the Bhagavad Gita, the first words are Dhritarashtra Vacha, Dhritarashtra said. Uh, so the Bhagavad Gita, this is going on within a history. And unless you know the history, you may not understand why Krishna is telling Arjuna to do certain things, like to fight in the battle. So the reason is actually found in the name of Dhritarashtra. Because the word Dhrita, which is cognate, comes from the same root as Dharma, by the way. The root Dhrita means sort of hang on, hanging on to something, holding on to something, or, or simply holding something. Like, for example, one popular name for Krishna is uh, Gadadhar. Gada means a club or a mace. He holds the mace. He holds the club. So he's called. Krishna also holds a chakra, this uh, extremely lethal disc weapon. And uh, therefore, Krishna is called Chakratara. And so on and so forth. And Dharma is made from the same root. Because Dharma means that if you perform certain activities, you will sustain your position as a civilized human being. And... If you perform sanatana dharma, eternal dharma, you will sustain your awareness, self-awareness as an eternal soul. Anyway, these things are all related. But the word dritta here, rastra, means uh, king, uh, kingdom, means kingdom. And that's where you, for example, you get Spanish words like reino, means kingdom, and so on from the word raja. So rastra means the place of a king, a kingdom is a rastra. So Dritta Rastra means literally he clung to the kingdom even when it didn't really belong to him. And so his name is sort of, I mean, he can have a more positive connotation. It can mean that he sustained the kingdom. So it's kind of like this tongue-in-cheek humor at his expense because he sort of held the kingdom, but he also held on to the kingdom. So, and that's the whole problem. That's why... Krishna is encouraging Arjuna. Oh, that's part of my, that was part of our contract, right? I get free water. <laughs> Thank you. So, to give a very brief analysis, there was a constitutional crisis in India at this time. There was, just like there's some big politicians nowadays in America who have very little concern for the Constitution. Their uh, extreme narcissism doesn't allow for such concern. So it's very important to understand that the Vedic civilization was constitutional monarchy. It was not absolute monarchy. Th these things are very different. Um, constitutional monarchy means that the king is not above the law. England became thoroughly, completely a constitutional monarchy around 1688 with what they call the Glorious Revolution because there are various historical issues which I won't get into, but which there are many, many, many books about it. Uh, the king, William and Mary, uh, became the new king and queen of England. And 
they signed a, a, a contract with Parliament limiting their powers, that Parliament had a constitutional right to meet, to pass laws. The king was still the king, but his powers had to be balanced with those of the Parliament. And so in, in the Western world, 1688, you get the first real constitutional monarchy. And if you want something which is exactly the opposite, around the same time, there's Louis XIV of France, who was asked one time, what system of government do you have, or what kind of state, etat in French? And he famously said, l'etat, c'est moi. The state, it's me. So, and of course, he had such absolute power that it led to, its, as, as Plato said, that tyranny leads to anarchy. And of course, the result of Louis XIV's absolute power was the French Revolution. That's a whole other story. In any case, I'm just trying to locate the system of government because this battle of Kurukshetra is not just a bunch of people, you know, meeting for, you know, the rumble on the jungle or something. This is, this is a constitutional crisis and the battle is being fought by legitimate governments or, in some cases, governments that aren't so legitimate. So it's a constitutional crisis. So you, some people say they don't understand the history. Why is Christian telling Arjuna to fight to restore constitutional government and to prevent tyranny? Roughly, I mean, just to give a very brief description of it. And so Dhritarashtra Vatsa, Dhritarashtra said, he's, he's the guy on the wrong side of history. He's the one who is violating, oh, I should also mention that um, the constitution in Vedic culture was called the Dharma Shastra or the law books. The word dharma in Sanskrit has many meanings. One of the primary meanings in Sanskrit is law. Law of the capital L. Because in our secular society, you can imagine a, an unjust law, but, you, but there couldn't by definition be unjust dharma, because dharma means justice. And of course, there's a famous verse in the Bhagavatam that says, Dharma hi saksat bhagavat pranita. Dharma is that which is literally brought forth by the Lord, the laws of God. So these Dharma Shastras, these law books, form a constitution that was acted effectively as a constitution in the civilization. And therefore, again, the Battle of Kurukshetra, which is the setting for the Bhagavad Gita, was precipitated by a constitutional crisis. And there's a whole history behind it, so I thought you should know that. <laughs> Moving right along. So, Dhritarashtra Uvacha, Dharma Kshetre, Guru Kshetre, Samaveta Yutsava. So, on the field of Dharma, Dharma Kshetre, on the field of Dharma, Kurukshetra in the, in the field of the Kurus. Because Kurukshetra is or was within the boundaries of the Kuru kingdom. So it was, it was part of the Kuru nation. And therefore, but within that Kuru nation, of course their territory extended far beyond that, uh, this was specifically Dharmakshetra. This was considered to be a holy place or a place of justice, of uh, higher principles. 
And then samaveta, uh, which is translated here, assemble. If you can bear it, I'll give you a very literal explanation. Where the, the words are very interesting. Sanskrit is a very interesting language. Sam means together, like sankirtan, together kirtan. And by the way, we still have that prefix sum together in English, which it went through Greek and became sum, S-Y-N, which we pronounce sin. So like synthesis, the together thesis, or symbiotic, biological things working together. So our prefix S-Y-N is from the Sanskrit sum. Then other ita, literally they went, they went down together. They got into it together. And so they, they assembled. That's what the word means. Sama other. And so they assembled Yuyutsava. And they were eager to fight. They wanted to fight. Yuyutsava. Mamaka, my people, Pandavas Chaiva, and indeed the Pandavas, such as Arjun. What did they do? Very simple. What did they do? Anyway, I'm going to kind of limit all the historical linguistic references because I can go on forever. <laughs> so, um, and as Prabhupada points out, and as, you know, as a great Acharya, here this, this distinction he made, Mamaka and Pandavas Chaiva, my people, and the Pandavas, indeed, was already a violation of Dharma. Just that statement, because the Pandavas lost their father. Tragically lost their father. And therefore, by law, by Dharma, uh, Dhritarashtra, their uncle, was their surrogate father and was supposed to act as their father by law. And yet, he doesn't accept them. He rejects them as his own people, even though they came to him as uh, children, as orphans, and looked to him as their father, took shelter of him. And yet he looked the other way when there were plots to murder his own nephews, who by law were now his sons. So there's a long history, a very nasty history. And here, basically, these two words, Mamaka Pandavas, um, really define the whole problem. That's why there's a war about to start. It's because of these, the, because of the mentality behind these words, Pandavas, Mamaka, Pandava. That's the whole story in a nutshell. So, Kimakurvata. Now, the reason Dhritarashtra is asking is because he was born blind. And of course, uh, even 5,000 years ago, you know, people were saying, well, he's not only physically blind. He's also, I mean, people were saying that 5,000 years ago when he was still alive. So it's like, it wasn't lost on anybody that he was blind in both these ways. And so, So, so what did they do? The reason he's asking is because he's on the battlefield. He's blind, he's elderly, can't really take part. So he's back in the palace. And uh, his secretary, lifelong secretary, is named Sanjaya. Sanjaya. And Sanjaya, as, as Sanjaya will, and so Sanjaya is actually narrating all this. 
And so at the end of the Gita, um, Sanjay will say, Vyasa Prasada Chutavan. I heard all this. I could see all this, this conversation between Krishna and Arjuna by the mercy of Vyasa, my guru. So Vyasa Prasada Chutavan. I have heard by the mercy of Vyasa. So Sanjaya is, a, you know, maybe a, I don't know what it is, maybe, you know, 80 miles away or something. And um, roughly, I have to look it up. And he's in the palace and he's hearing everything by the power of his guru, Vyasa, who's great, who's an avatar. And then he's, he's it, it's sort of like, it's sort of like the original pay-per-view <laughs> where, <laughs> so even though Dreyras is blind, he's kind of getting like this ringside analysis <laughs> of what's going on there. So that's the first verse. And, um, and then it goes on. And then uh, Sanjaya, then Sanjaya said, he's narrating, that Dristwa to Pandava Nikam, seeing the Pandava army, Vyudham, in battle formation. Duryodhana, Duryodhana is the son of Dhritarashtra, and he's kind of the real villain of this story. It's funny because not only his father's name, but his name too is sort of like a double entendre. Because Dur in Sanskrit, just like it still means in Spanish, like duro de hacer, like, like duro means hard in Spanish and actually all Latin languages, Portuguese, Italian, so on. It means difficult, and that's Sanskrit, dur. So duryodhana, yodhana means fighter. So duryodhana can mean, if you want to take it in the most positive way, someone that's hard to fight against, but also it means dirty fighter. Duryodhana. So, um, so Drishwatu Pandavanikam Yudam Duryodhana then Acharya Upasangamya approached his Acharya, his uh, military guru. His military guru, who was Duryodhana, who was Drona, Dronacharya. So he was approaching him. Raja, the king, false king, because he stole the kingdom, Duryodhana Vachanam of Ravit spoke these words. So now Duryodhana is speaking to his military guru, who's also on the battlefield, fighting with him and for him. Pashtitam, Pashtitam, Pandu Putranam Acharya Mahatim Shamoon. Oh, Acharya, oh, teacher. Uh, Behold, this great army, this great army of Pandu's sons, the Pandavas. Vyudham, Drupada which has been organized, put in battle formation by the son of Drupada. Now, why does he mention that way? Well, first of all, he's just, he's mentioning that the son of Drupada was another king. Drupada was the king of Panchala. Panchala is sort of geographically, it's very much like, it's like England and France, but without the English Channel. But in other words, it's a little bit Southeast. And also, just if you know anything about European history, you know that Europe, Europe, England and France were always either allies or fighting each other. They were always rivals and so on. You know, it's a very long history of between England and France. And that was exactly the situation between 
the Panchalas and the Kudus, the neighboring kingdom and sometimes allies, a lot of the time rivals. But why did he mention Drupada's son, who's one of the Panchala princes? He mentions him because uh, that prince he's referring to is called Drishta Dyumna. And he was born in this yogic way. What happened is that Drona, who this is all interrelated. If you know the story, if you know the history, you are on the edge of your seat right now. If you don't know the history, you're thinking, when do we get past all the boring lists of names and, <laughs> so we can get to the real Gita? Drona is an older generation. He's, old, he's an older generation than the Pandavas and Krishna and so on. And when he was young, and this is one of the problems, this is one of the indications that the Kali Yuga was coming, that the earth was becoming rapidly corrupted and a dark age was coming. Because you get people like Drona, who was born in a Brahmin, born to a Brahmin father, but who was fascinated with and attached to uh, military activities. It's just like nowadays, if you get, let's say, a guru who's too attached to managing other people's lives, uh, it will cause some tension, even in spiritual movements. <clears throat> and so there is a God-given system where these two functions of managing, administering, governing, and the function of teaching, teaching and giving spiritual guidance, they're separated into two distinct social classes. Because Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Chatur Varnya Mayasistam, I have created this system of four varnas, four vocational communities. And so Drona, frankly, as an example that the Kali Yuga is coming, that this dark age is coming, even though he received all the honor due a Brahmana, a sage, and he definitely accepted it, he still wanted to enjoy the power of a warrior. And so you can see how this corruption is setting in. And so the backstory to this verse is that Drona's father was a great sage named Bharadwaja, who unfortunately also had sort of predilection for weapons because Brahmins would teach martial arts. If you have a martial arts teacher, that person's still a teacher. And so Brahmins sometimes would teach martial arts, but so Drona's father was attached to Bharadwaja was attached to weapons. He's kind of like a weapon collector. And his son had this same problem. And so Bharadwaja had a friend, his father, Drona's father had a good friend who was a king, the king of Panchala, whose name was Prashita. And so because the great sage Bharadwaja, who was a Brahman, was, was friends with Prashita, this other king, therefore, this, the, their two sons also became friends. Drona's son, no, I'm sorry, uh, Prishita's son 
was uh, Drupada. Drupada, King Drupada of Panchala. He's now the, he was the king of Panchala during this battle. So uh, Prachita's son is Drupada, and Bharadwaja's son is Drona. So when Drupada went away to school in this Brahmin academy, uh, he became friends with a boy his age who was Drona, because they were sons of two men who were also good friends, namely the king and the sage. So at one point, as they were growing up together in school together, uh, Drupada told his friend Drona that when I become king, you know, you know, I can provide you whatever you want, whatever you need, I can provide it to you. But just, and, and so now this is one of many stories in the Mahabharata that has become completely distorted, corrupted, and uh, beyond recognition by in Hindu mythic memory. And so this is a story where if you read a standard Mahabharata, which according to great teachers like Madhvacharya and every modern scholar in the world, is a very corrupted text, the Sanskrit Mahabharata. Um, this story got completely twisted around in a way which is obviously absurd. And it got twisted because in because the Mahabharata, is there any way to? The oh. Okay. I guess we should allow them to continue. <laughs> but just this time. So, so why did the story, uh, first of all, I'll tell you how the story became corrupted. Here, here's the corrupted version, which you will find in every Mahabharata, a little summary, including those published by ISKCON. And, uh, you know, every Mahabharata comic book in India, in every Mahabharata movie, and it's a corrupted version, and I will show you why it's obviously an absurd corruption that could not have happened. So here's the corrupted version. When uh, Drona, the son of the sage, who's also a Brahmin, but a Brahmin, you know, was a big, also a big weapon collector. When he got married, he married this saintly lady named Kripi, she had, there's a whole story about her, but anyway, he married Kripi, and he was very poor, he was a very poor Brahmin. In fact, he couldn't even, he couldn't even afford milk for his darling little son, Ashwatthama, the future serial killer. So anyway. Maybe he should have started him a little longer. <laughs> So Drona can't afford milk, and he's literally, his, his child can't even, you know, is not even, can't even be healthy. And so he thinks, oh, my old buddy, you know, my, you know, what did they call it, FFB or something? BFF. BFF, yeah, or something. Yeah. So my old friend, um, Drupada is now the king. His father passed away. Drupada is now a very rich king. So I'll go to my old friend and, you know, basically ask, you know, how would you like to sponsor a, you know, like maybe one year of milk cartons for my kid or something, you know, school milk program. <laughs> so he goes to Drupada and Drupada totally mistreats him. Drupada is very arrogant and says, because, because Jonah said, you know, hey, remember we're friends. 
And then Drupada says, what? We can't be friends. I'm a rich king now. You're just sort of, you're just some poor Brahmin. And, uh, and so, you know, don't embarrass me. Like, I don't even want to be seen with you. And he sends him away. So Drona is so hurt by this that later when Drona becomes the principal of a military college in Hastinapur for the Kurus and the Pandavas, when it's time for his students, this is the custom to pay their dakshina. In other words, Drona taught them, now you have to give a gift to your guru, a guru gift for, for your graduation. So then Drona says, what I want for my guru gift is half of Drupada's kingdom. I want half of Panchala. And so, so that king can pay for his offense against his old friend. So the Pandas don't want to do it because their father, Pandu, was good friends with Drupada, the king of Panchala. But they go there and they conquer half, and they take half the kingdom. Now, that is the corrupted, and I would say absurd, as I will show you, Hindu version of this story. Every comic book, every Indian, you know, movie and TV show about Mahabharata. Um, okay, now let's explain why it's absurd. And, and of course, the reason they, they twisted the story is because, you know, because the stories were under the power of the Brahmins. It's the Brahmins who told the stories and, you know, the Brahmin had to win, Brahmin had to be the good guy, and the king had to be the bad guy. Here's why the story is absurd. Number one, before, before Drupada, I'm sorry, before Drona even approached Drupada, years before he even approached Drupada and was offended, he had already married into the richest family on earth. In other words, he was part of a family who were like, you know, in modern terms, at like hundreds of billions of dollars. And the richest family on earth that he'd already married into years before, they were called the Kurus. Because Drona's wife, Kripi, not as I say in the West, creepy. Please don't say creepy. <laughs> it's Kripi. Kirpi was the adopted daughter of Shantanu, the great Kuru emperor. And the proof that he was part of the richest family on earth, but he can't afford milk in a dairy intensive society. The proof that he actually married into this family is that when Drupada rebuffed him, what happens? He goes straight up the road to Hastinapur, to the Kuru capital, and all he has to do is just show up. He just shows up. In Hastinapur, here's your mansion to live in, and please be the head of the military college. He just has to, he's, all he has to do is walk into Hastinapur and he's a rich man with a palace, with his own little palace. And this is the guy that couldn't afford milk. Not only that, it's absurd for another reason. You see, people don't 
connect these historical dots. It's absurd for another reason. Drupada was very famous for being extremely generous with Brahmins. And the fact that Drona was a you know, so-called poor Brahmin, he was supposed to be poor. That's Brahmins were supposed to be poor. And the whole idea was because they have so much power, people that have so much spiritual and religious power shouldn't have material power. The system was set up that way. In fact, one big part of the Vedic economy was that on ma at major events like great weddings or sacrifices or swine bars and all these things, the Brahmins, the poor sages would all go there because the kings would give out this very generous charity. So the Brahmins were not supposed to own things. <laughs> and so therefore, the, the idea that Dhruvada, who was famous as a Vedic king, as being very deferential Brahmins, would reject Drupada because he wasn't rich, that's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. And actually, you know, one hint of where it comes from, it comes from Indian history, Hinduism, thousands of years later, where the Brahmins, in fact, were sometimes greedy and accumulated fortunes, used it. And therefore, a Brahmin wasn't respectable if he was poor. There's a very interesting example of this, exactly what I'm talking about, in the Chaitanya Charitamrita. Absolutely horrified because the father, sort of the head of the family, wanted to give his daughter to a poor Brahmin in marriage. Now this is, right, Sakshi Gopal, this is a Brahmin family and the man, the, the, the sort of the senior, the elder, uh, like the grandfather of, of the family, he wants to give his daughter to a very good Brahman, a Brahman who in terms of spiritual and cultural qualifications is, you know, top notch. But because he's not rich, the family is shocked, horrified, and they say they're all going to kill themselves if he does this. So this kind of Brahmin community that's greedy, that wants money, that uh, where you know that and where they don't respect Brahmins who don't have money, that culture, Hindu culture, which comes thousands of years later, was corruptly put back into the Mahabharata as an interpolation. And Drupada turns out that he doesn't want to be seen with the poor Brahmin which has absolutely nothing to do with the culture 5,000 years ago when these events occurred. And as I mentioned, uh, Drona was already part of the richest family on the planet. You just had to walk into town and say, hey everybody, I'm back. Okay, here's your mansion. Here's your milk. <laughs> so that's just an example. I'm working on Mahabharata and I'm trying to reconstruct this actual history. Yes? Did the Pandavas still defeat 
Ruben and, and take half of the kingdom? Yes. That part yes, but that was an offense. And that's when they began to realize that Drona was not a pure soul. And it's even in the Bhagavad Gita, in the first chapter, where, Krishna, where Arjuna describes Drona and Bhisma as Arthakamans, who are greedy for wealth. And that's why they're supporting. So Arjuna calls his own guru, military guru, not spiritual master. So yeah, so, Ar so Arjuna was devastated by this. But according to the law, he had no choice because, you know, he never suspected that his guru would pull a trick like this. And so, you know, and so he took instructions like, let's say you go to a restaurant, veggie girl or something. Let's, let, let's, let's say you go to a restaurant and you order a big lunch and you eat it. And then you decide, well, actually, I didn't really like it that much. I'm not going to pay for it. Doesn't work that way. Unless it was, it was really bad, which you could threaten a lawsuit. And there are a lot of veggie girls in West LA where every other person is a lawyer. <laughs> so anyway, that's some of the background here. Pashayitan Pandu Putra Acharya. So Duryodhan is no. Okay. Now we get to the, uh, the really the juicy part. Why, why did Duryodhana specifically mention, behold the Pandava army arranged in battle, in battle formation by Drupada's son? Like, as if Duryodhana didn't know that? I mean, both sides had spies everywhere, plus it's going on in the open air. I mean, everyone knows these things. Why is he telling him what he already knows? Why is he telling his guru that? For one simple reason. And that is that after Drona stole half of Drupada's kingdom, stole half of Drupada's kingdom, Drupada was devastated. He was, because he'd been globally, not just publicly, but around the whole world, completely humiliated, completely humiliated. And so he was basically, he couldn't practically, you know, he was just deeply, deeply ashamed of what had happened. And, and he's, you know, he's a warrior. And so it's not okay. So he decides, I will, he, he can't even set foot in his palace until he rectifies this. And half his kingdom has been stolen. So he goes, he finds these powerful Brahmins in the forest yogis, sages, called Yaga and Upayaga. Yaga means kind of like Joe sacrifice. I mean, you know, because <laughs> it's kind of what it sounds like in a, like Mr. Sacrifice, like, like these sacrificial ceremonies, powerful sacrifices. And Upayaga, younger brothers, it's common in uh, this ancient culture that a younger brother is named like is like the junior versus older brother. Like, for example, the most famous one, Krishna has an incarnation called Upendra or Vamana. And so Upendra, Upa Indra, Upa just means junior Indra because his older brother was Indra. And so he's little Indra. In the same way, Yaga and Upa Yaga, like Yaga and little Yaga. So it's, it's a name for a younger brother. So he found these powerful yogi sages 
And he, he's here he is a king. He's this powerful king. And he becomes the personal servant of these two sages. He waits on them hand and foot. He is so determined to get revenge that he, and so he serves them so nicely because he knows what's coming next. At a certain point, they say, you've served us so amazingly, menial service, now we'll give you whatever you want. You know, ask us for a boon. He knows exactly what he wants. I want a son who will kill Drona. And so the sages say, well, so be it. So they perform this powerful sacrifice, their yoga power, and out of the fire comes this like supernatural warrior named Dristaduna, who will be the killer of Drona, who no one can fight with. And then the sacrifice is so powerful that there was like an altar, a little altar where they did a sacrifice. And out of this fire altar came a goddess who would help the Pandavas, and her name is Draupadi. So they have these extraordinary births. And so Drupada, Drupada's son, Dristadyumna, has this divine power to kill Drona. Everyone knows it. You know, he's just a little kid, but everyone knows that someday he will kill Drona. And, um, and that's why Duryodhana says, by the way, did you notice that this battle formation was arranged by Dristadyumna? And so, because he's telling them, you better totally be on your guard. Of course, Duryodhana is thinking that maybe Drona must have yoga powers to counteract that. And, you know, we can maybe engage our own yogi sages or whatever. So Duryodhana, because Duryodhana doesn't play by the rules, he's hoping that maybe this rule also, you know, maybe there's a workaround here. But he's tell because he knows also that Duryodhana was actually very fond of the Pandavas because when he was teaching at the military college, his favorite student was Arjuna and his best student was Arjuna. Arjuna was so powerful as an archer. In fact, the military science is called Dhanurveda, knowledge of the bow. What? Well, five minutes. That, um, so one little story of how powerfully determined Arjuna was and how he became the greatest archer in the world. It came time to give like a final exam, or one of the final exams to all the Kurus and Pandavas. <coughs> and so he called them one by one. First he called Yudhisthira. He put it, he put this target that had to be hit. That was on a mechanical bird and was hanging from the branch of a tree. So he called up Yudhisthira and said, do you, do you see the target? Yes. Do you see me? Yes. Do you see the tree? Yes. He said, sit down. Then he called up Duryodhana. One by one, he called everybody, and they, got, they, they couldn't give the right answer. So finally he called Arjuna. And he said, do you see the target? Oh, they had to hit the eye of, the, of this bird. They had to hit the eye of the bird. So he said, do you see 
the target? No. Do you see the tree? No. Do you see me? No. What do you see? I see the eye of the bird. And he said, all right, fire. And he hit it. So anyway, so, so Jonah was very fond of his former students and therefore Duryodhana was worried. And that's why he reminded him, hey, you know, the enemy army, guess who put it in battle formation? It's Tristadumna, in case you were kind of, you know, not paying attention or kind of relaxed or not really going to fight real hard. So this is what's going on. Anyway, so the, the, again, if, if you know, I think I have two minutes left before the book comes out. So if you know, if you know the history, when you read the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, you're not kind of skipping it to get to the, you know, the other part or just a list of names. You're actually, you know, this is this was like the biggest, most incredible blockbuster movie you've ever seen. Because you know the history. So maybe we'll stop there for now. I think we're gonna have questions now. Yes. Actually, could you, if you wouldn't mind, if people could ask questions, come here and actually speak into the screen so that all of our listeners can see you and uh, know who to blame for the questions and also what the questions are. You said that Drona was very attached to, to the Kshatriya way of life, even though he was born in the Brahmana family. And that was sort of indicative of Kali Yuga's presence coming. Kali Yuga's coming. It's like, for example, like now it's um, summer, but some of the days are starting to cool off because it's not that you know, like like yesterday was summer and then today is fall. Mm -hmm. You know, there are transitions. Yeah, so it's like that. It was the Kali Yuga was coming. Symptoms started to pop up. So I was wondering, in the way that a high class or a, an utmost class person, a Brahmana was attracted to like, I guess the, the second class or Kshatriya lifestyle. Is it, is it somewhat different if someone in the Kshatriya class becomes attracted to maybe the Brahminical standard? That's interesting. Some of them did, but for the wrong reasons. Like for example, Vish uh, what's the name? Uh, Anyway, there was a chapter he wanted to become a Brahmin for the wrong reason. He wanted the power. So if someone really is a Kshatriya and they, they're attracted to Brahminical life, um, actually the opposite of Drona would be Yudhisthira, who was a warrior, but he was almost too Brahminical for his own good. And so in that sense, someone was too pious when he, and, and so it interfered with him doing his proper duty. And so it's like, let's say, for example, God forbid, let's say there's some people and then some criminals come with guns and they're threatening to kill them. And there's an armed, there's a policeman, they're armed with a weapon, but he suddenly goes Gandhi on you. Like, uh, no, you know, Hingsa, Hingsa, you know, you're gonna get killed, you're about to get shot. The children are about to get killed but, and, and the police are there with weapons, but they suddenly, you know, they go nonviolence. No, they have to protect people. Yeah, so you just hear. So yeah, there usually when a Kshatriya wants to has more formidable qualities, you know, if they still keep the position of Kshatriya, 
it, it often is not a great thing. So any other questions? Yes, please come and... Uh, I could just turn the um, camera around to the audience too. I mean, they've been, they've been sitting, maybe a little exercise, you know. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hey. There you go. There we go. Hey. Our next contestant. All right, my next contestant. I want to ask a question about a specific word, the word dharma. Yes. Because um, I keep on, I'm, I'm fairly new to, uh, to the Bhakti philosophy, uh, and I keep on finding that there's different significances for the words. Yes. Dharma, and I wanted to ask you about those significances, uh, the meanings, and which which are the ones that we need to hold more in our mind. Very good question. You're welcome to say there for the answer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the word dharma, like you said, has different meanings. But for example, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of words in English. Book and dictionary have very different meanings. And so they're defined by context. And um, so, for example, dharma, because it, it comes to the root, which means to hold or sustain, it can also mean uh, an essential quality of something that sort of sustains its identity. Like, for example, the dharma of water would be liquidity or transparency. And so if something is liquid and transparent, you know, it, it may be water. It's H2O. So, or, for example, one poetic way of saying in, in the Mahabharata that someone died is, is that saying the dharma of time overcame them. Because the dharma of time is that ultimately destroys everything. Just like Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Kalos me loka krit, time I am, destroyer of the world. So the final, it's like whatever exists in this world, you know, when there's no time left on the scoreboard clock, the final score is, you know, time one and whatever else it was, zero, because because everything in the world, time leads it to its end. And then, of course, Krishna says, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that Mrityu Sarvaras Chaham Udbhavas Chabhavishyatam. Krishna says in chapter ten that I am the death, Mrityu uh, Sarvab uh, of all beings, but I am also uh, the the coming into being of all that will come into being. So, but since time is, it's, you know, it's, it's commonly known as ultimately bringing death to things. So, um, so it said that the, the, the Dharma of time overcame someone. There was the essential quality of time overcame it. But again, in a typical phrase like that in Mahabharata, I mean, you know what it means, but the context makes it obvious. Or, for example, uh, dharma, if we're talking about sanatana dharma, then it's obvious what it means, eternal dharma, your eternal nature as a soul. Or, um, or for example, sri dharma, you know, the dharma of women. Or raja dharma, the dharma of kings. And so, so usually, by the context, it's obvious. As far as what the most important one is, by far the most important sense is Sanatana Dharma. Because you, you, we all have certain dharmas because of our body type. For example, if you're by nature an intellectual or, or you like to manage things or you like to make money or you like arts and crafts or just assisting working in some company, 
or if you're married or not married, or if you're, you know, a retired person. And so all these have their dharma. You know, there's brahmachari dharma, and grihastha dharma, and, and so on, and brahmana dharma, and vaisha dharma, and raja dharma. And so there's all these dharmas for your body type, which help you to have a natural, peaceful life. But ultimately, there's the dharma of the soul itself. And the soul's dharma, your eternal dharma, is to love and serve Krishna. So that's the winner. That's the winner. Save the dharma. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, thanks for coming. So, yes, please make your way to the uh, question booth. <laughs> so you can see yourself. Krishna. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they, if you can see yourself, then you <laughs> can see you. Uh, please tell us about uh, secondary and primary uh, of uh, quality devotee. Secondary and primary. Qualities of devotee? Yes, or maybe symptoms of, the, of devotee. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, well, it's good. Make me think. Don't ever, ever make me think. <laughs> so, um, well, I would say that I would say if someone's really a devotee, someone's really made it and really deserves to be called a devotee. It's not, it's not merely thinking that Krishna's great or Krishna's interesting. It's actually understanding that Krishna's everything. In the sense that Anything at all that we admire in this world, as Krishna says at the end of chapter 10, Jajadibhutunatsatam, Simadurshan, and so on. Like, let's say, let's say you see someone of the opposite sex and you think is beautiful. But that beauty is coming from Krishna. Or if you hear some beautiful music of any style, that's coming from Krishna. It's Krishna in the heart of the musician, the composer. And so it's not that we don't give any credit to other people. We do give them credit because they are able to embody or to manifest different different opulences of Krishna because they're being blessed by Krishna. So living your life in such a way that you are blessed by God, you know, that's also to your credit. It's also, it's not that uh, we don't want to give anyone credit, but um, so if you really like, for example, there's this beautiful verse in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, sort of Sanskritic Bengali, which is Shraddhasa Dei Vishwasa Kehi Sujitta Nishai Krishna Bhakti Koile Sarva Dharma Kritahoi. Amazing verse. It says that, it says, uh, it says the definition of the word Shraddhasa, defining the word Shraddhasa Dei, that the word Shraddha means Shraddha. In Sanskrit, it's usually translated faith, like in BBT books, it's almost always translated faith. But it's actually a particular kind of faith. It's, it's, it's actually a compound word, shraddha, which means putting your trust in something. Because you can believe God exists, but you think he's a jerk. Or, or you can believe that God exists or you can think that uh, God exists, but you can't ever see God and no one knows God. So I believe God exists, but it's just not a serious option in terms of what I'm going to pay attention to. And so Shraddha 
And there's a word, merely believing God exists is another word in Sanskrit. It's the word astikya, from the word asti, he exists. So astikya. But shraddha means you, you, not, you not only believe that something exists, but you not, only, you not only believe it exists, but you believe in it, in the sense that you really give your heart to it. And so therefore, this verse in this Chaitanya Charitamra is defining the word shraddha. It says, Shraddha Shabde, by the word Shraddha, Vishwasa Kahe, one is saying Vishwasa. And Vishwasa means, in Sanskrit, means trust, confidence, trust. So that, that trust is defined, Krishna Bhakti Koile, simply by devoting myself to Krishna. Sarva Karma Kritahoi, everything will be. Every duty will be done. Even if you say it's my duty to, to be happy or to... There's whatever you think you should do or whatever you think you should be, that will actually happen if you devote yourself to Krishna. And if you trust in that, if you believe in that, then you're actually devoting. And of course, there are different levels of devotees. Some of them are kind of not quite there. In fact, you know, they're called uh, Kanishta, Madhyama, and Uttama, Adhikari. Adhikari means like someone who holds a particular position. So Kanishta literally in Sanskrit means the lowest. Not so flattering. So the symptoms of the person on the lowest level of Krishna consciousness is Actually, it's sort of defined in the, it's defined in two ways, which is very synonymous. In the Bhagavatam, it said, Archayam eva haraye pujam dyakshad haye hate natta bhakti shuchan yeshu so bhakta prakritismah. A person on the lowest platform, a devotee who's actually not transcendental, actually on the material platform. The first thing is that person endeavors to worship. Krishna, but only in the deity form in the temple. In other words, when I go into the temple, I behave myself and I worship. And as soon as I walk out the door, you know, it's all hell breaks loose. And I, you know, I can do whatever I want. I'm a free man, a free woman. In other words, maybe in the temple, I'll try to be nice to people. But as soon as I walk out the door, I can just treat them like dirt. I'm sure you all have some personal <laughs> memories. <laughs> so archayam eva, arch, archayam means in archa, in the deity form, Ar eva only. Archayam eva haraye unto hari, Krishna, puja, one who endeavors to worship. Hari, but nata bhaktishi, but a per, that person does not understand that every, the body of every devotee is a temple because Krishna's in the heart being worshipped. And not only devotees, every living being, every living thing or, or the body, the body of every living being is a temple of God. That includes plants, Includes animals, includes humans, 
some of them are kind of got it never but but that's the idea so if you think that god lives in this building if you think that god lives in this building and you don't realize that god lives in every living thing then you're on the material platform because your concept of god is material it's that god is here but not everywhere else and that's a material idea So, and so another definition given in our literature is that um, the person on the third class platform um, worships God, but does not, is not really able to establish meaningful, lasting friendships with other worshipers. And, uh, and is not really concerned about helping other people. It's like, you know, what do you do to help save the world to help bring people to enlightenment well you know i go to the temple on a sunday i you know get a bunch of free food and talk to my friends that's my contribution to world peace <laughs> so on the second class platform on the second class platform which is called madhya middle someone in the, literally someone in the middle position madhya madhikari Madhya Madhikari worships Krishna, but also is eager to establish true, lasting friendship with other devotees. And as we know, the ability to make and keep friends is an ability that not everyone has. I will quote from, you know, one of the secondary Shastras. Uh, Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> There's this great line. Anyway, if, you, if any of you know the story, if you don't, then uh, go to my website. Anyway, there's this great line where, you know, Lizzie and, and Mr. Darcy start off totally on the wrong foot, offending each other and really kind of really never want to see each other again. But Darcy kind of starts to realize that, well, maybe I was a little hasty. So they're, they're at this one of these great, you know, these formal balls they used to have where they're dancing. You've seen the movies where they're lined up and everything, one of these formal balls. And they're kind of, and so uh, for various reasons, Lizzie, the heroine, this great heroine of English literature, she really wants to get him. She wants to put him down because she thinks, she thinks he's done bad things. Turns out she's wrong, but she thinks he's done bad things. And so she asks him about this guy Wickham was kind of the villain of the story. And then she's saying something like, you know, it's unfortunate the way, you know, some people have treated him because Darcy thinks Darcy mistreated him. So then Darcy says, and, and this is kind of gets right back to our philosophy of uh, Madhumati Kauris. Darcy was like, you know, sophisticated guy, very educated, high, high class English guy. He says, he says uh, that Mr. Wickham has the happy ability to easily make friends whether he is equally able to keep them is another matter. And actually it's true, he can't keep friends because sooner or later people find out what he really is. So you can't keep a good friend unless you are a good friend. And so people who are too self-centered or just, I don't know, too something, and they're not able to really be good friends to others, they can't keep good friends. And to keep friendship, 
with a serious devotee, you know, requires you have to kind of be real, spiritual. You have to be spiritually real. You can't just be putting on a show or, you know, whatever. And so that's one of the that's one of the, the symptoms and qualifications and it's an evidence that someone has really reached this middle position that they can make and keep friendships with good devotees. And then also second class devotees are very merciful because they know that Krishna is in the heart of every living being. They may not have perfectly realized it, but you know, they've had a, they realize it enough. And so therefore, they're very concerned to help other people. They really want to do whatever is necessary to spread Krishna consciousness to other people. And that's their real concern in life. Even if someone has a family or a job, and you know, obviously there, we, we may have many duties in life and you have to do your duties, but still in their heart, what they ultimately really want to do is to spread the spiritual knowledge to other people. So that's the second class devotee. And the first class devotee is, um, and this is very interesting. And I, and I want to make a strong point here because I don't think I, I, I still haven't gotten myself in trouble with you know, ultra conservative devotees, so can't let a class pass without doing that. <laughs> and that is, and that is that the highest devotee sees that everyone else is a devotee of Krishna. The highest devotee thinks that I'm not really so great, but everyone else, even if they've forgotten it, even if they're kind of bewildered right now, ultimately I see that they are really devotees of Krishna. Now what that means is that as you move from the third class to the third class, first class, it's not like you just make these quantum leaps that are not connected. It's obviously a gradual progression. It's like anything else. If let's say you're, you're learning to be a, a musician, you don't just suddenly go from, you know, awful where no one, you know, no one can stand. I can't you practice somewhere else. Like you go from awful to concert musician, you know, you just gradually improve and that's the nature of life. So, but still we, where's the vector? What direction? As we advance toward higher Krishna consciousness, what direction are things going in? And they're going in the direction of seeing less and less difference between devotees and non-devotees. Not thinking that I'm more advanced if, if, you know, the way I dress and the way I do everything, I can build this high cultural wall of separation between me and the world. And some people think, that shows what a great devotee I am. It actually shows what a great neophyte they are. If a neophyte thinks, ah, no big deal, devotee, non-devotee, why? Because a neophyte is attached to material things. And so, you know, okay, you know, I'm a devotee, I'm not supposed to eat these things, but you know, who cares, I'm gonna eat it anyway. Or I'm a devotee, I shouldn't sexually exploit this person, but you know, whatever. And so if a neophyte, if a third class person neglects, let's say the rules, which are very much part of bhakti yoga, it's for all the wrong reasons. Whereas if an advanced devotee who follows all the important rules, I mean, it's obviously not gonna sexually exploit someone, is not gonna, you know, 
you know, I need a break. I'm going to go have a, you know, a hamburger or something. So if an advanced devotee doesn't see much difference between, or, or, or so much difference between devotees and non-devotees, it's not because the person is materialistic. It's exactly the opposite. It's because the person is advanced and can see that every living being, every soul is originally and ultimately a devotee. And therefore, an advanced devotee, an advanced devotee is trying not to build a high wall of separation between devotees and non-devotees, but to bring down the wall so that non-devotees can feel comfortable with us, can identify with us, because guess what? If, if people can't identify with you, they're certainly not going to follow you. Now, that trying to bring down the high wall feels threatening to neophytes because they feel, it also frankly feels threatening who have channeled their egotism into bhakti yoga. Because if you have sort of this natural desire to lord it over other people, there's no better place for you than ISKCON leadership. <laughs> now, what I, what, I, what I don't mean by that, I don't mean that all ISKCON leaders are trying to lord it over. There are many leaders in ISKCON, men and women, now women are also acting as gurus, I'm happy to say. So we're sort of slowly coming out of the dark ages. <laughs> and there are actually many leaders in the Hare Krishna movement who are really great souls, who are advanced devotees. But when you see someone in leadership position who seems to always want to tell other people what to do, even unnecessarily, rather than being really anxious. It's like parents. Some parents really want to see their children growing and becoming, you know, and just becoming intelligent. And, and the more their children can accomplish on their own, the happier the parents are. Good parents. Some parents feel threatened by that. And they want to keep their children under their thumb. They want to keep their children always, you know, like, how dare you make a decision on your own? And so, if you're a leader in a spiritual movement, you know, what kind of leader? Are, are you exploiting the Hare Krishna movement because you like telling other people what to do? And you feel threatened when people think for themselves? Or are you a leader in the Hare Krishna movement because you just, you desire so much to help other people, you just ended up in that position? So, and, 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 you know, we should check ourselves. I'm a, you know, leader, I guess. So, I mean, all of us, all of us, I mean, if anything, a devotee, especially a devotee leadership position, should be very introspective. And not just assume that whenever I tell somebody what to do, it's just because I'm great. And also, the more we're advancing, the more you don't think you're better than other people. And... Yes, Kumi. Oh, five minutes. Okay, I think I've gotten myself in enough trouble for one, <laughs> one day. Again, just to make it clear, I'm not saying that ISKCON leaders and all ISKCON leaders are not advanced. Some of them are very advanced devotees. Some of them, are men and women, are wonderful leaders, and, they, uh, and they're a blessing to all of us. And some people 
still have some material desires and take advantage of the position like you know like you can't serve Krishna unless you do what I say and if you don't do everything I say then you know you shouldn't even be here and uh, you know you're adults you know you can figure this out for yourself so we have about four more minutes any any uh, last question before I am lavishly fed? Yes. My, my question is you. Oh, I yes. Have a, I have a Sanskrit. Yes, yes. Okay. And you are the only person I know. You have to see yourself. That. Okay. Um, Hari finished with A. Why is a male name with all the names in Sanskrit? the male names uh, ending with A. Hari That's an easy one. That's an easy one. Please. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, you just have to check MacDonnell's Oxford Sanskrit Grammar for Students, written about 100 years ago, still the best one. Of course, not used so much anymore because he's a dead white male and because you actually have to work hard to understand his book. But um, in Sanskrit, ma masculine nouns in Sanskrit can end in a, or E or U, like Vishnu or Hari. They don't all end in a. Generally, Sanskrit nouns end in long A or feminine, like Radha, and so on and so forth. Or nouns ended in long I, like Lakshmi, are generally feminine. And nouns end in, although, actually, am I really going to go through all the Sanskrit grammar for nouns? Because I asked. Okay. <laughs> the, the exception, a, a noun ending in a long I like Lakshmi, can be masculine only if its original stem form is short I-N, like yogin, yogi, and uh, et cetera. So I could, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, this is, we're talking about the endings for Sanskrit nouns, but they do end in all these different vowels. And there are nouns that don't end in consonants also, that's a different category. So, thank you all very much. And special thanks to Kumi, our European So, as we say in Sanskrit, Taksarvam Janaha, which means literally, that's all, folks. <laughs> Well, if, uh, we have on the schedule another 15-minute kirtan, and then JC made some cup cupcakes for oh, everyone. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So who wants to leave kirtan? Actually, I'm going to take a little break here. Oh, would you leave kirtan? Yeah. Srimati and Vaishnava say Oh, Srimati and Vaishnava. And Jaya Dwayne. Oh. Some people from Brazil. From? Brazil. Ah. Ciao. Are you Brazilian? No, I'm from Venezuela. Oh, Venezuela. Oh. Qué buena fortuna. No, amigo.